Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. This episode is part of a series of episodes specifically anchored around Plant-Based World Expo 2022. It is presented by Plant-Based World Expo and has been produced in collaboration with Plant-Based World Expo. If you haven't heard already, Plant-Based World Expo is the must-attend 100% plant-based trade show designed exclusively for food service and retail professionals, distributors, investors, and manufacturers. Now in its third year, Plant-Based World Expo is where you'll discover innovative plant-based products, hear from industry leaders and pioneers, and connect with the right people from the trade. And you'll be the first to sample mouth-watering plant-based food from groundbreaking US-based and international companies. Buddy Gillespie, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Happy to be here, Neil. Thank you so much. Why don't we start with your background? Let's touch on that, and then we'll get to what you currently do um, before we go into the heart of our conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll be quick about it. I was, uh, you know, even when I was a uh, probably four or five, I always wanted to be a chef. And for some reason, my mom gave me a stool, let me start cracking and cooking eggs in an oven, which thinking back on that, it was just completely insane. But, you know, God bless her. Uh, it led us to where we are today. And I grew up in upstate New York and the, the Culinary Institute of America was always there. Uh, you know, the Harvard of cooking schools. But back then it was just an associate's degree and really wasn't you know, the, the crown jewel of, uh, jobs that it is today. It was kind of like, Oh, you're going to cook for a living. But it was always my passion. I always like seeing people happy through food. It's just, it's the greatest joy to me. So I went to college for it, got a bachelor's in hotel restaurant management and uh, the culinary degree coincided with it, which was fantastic. Uh, from there, you know, you, you do your culinary excursions, uh, externs, et cetera. And, and like Bourdain wrote about it, it was very funny to read kitchen confidential. I would say 90% of that stuff was very accurate <laughs> and uh, your travels through the culinary world. I was fortunate to uh, early on after uh, doing my stint in the Cape as a, as a young chef, I went on to become involved with Houston's Hillstone restaurant and their management training, which at the time and probably still is a, the elite management training program. And, and they're wonderful because everything is from scratch and it's a 
high volume business in major cities. And I, you know, if you've eaten there, you know, um, but they work with the best purveyors from wine to meat to fish and seafood, and just absolutely a, a true learning experience on customer service. Uh, many years with them, traveled around the country, opened a lot of restaurants, kind of did a shift and uh, ended up in New York City. I uh, got transferred to open the Park Avenue location there and then ended up with um, Dave & Buster's, which I never thought I would be doing, but it was their first location in Times Square, 33,000 square feet. And, you know, everything was from scratch back then when Dave & Buster actually owned it. Even though it was bar appetizers, you know, we were hand dipping chicken tenders, onion rings, all the soups and sauces. So it was really, you know, high end effort. I had 100 employees, uh, three sous chefs. And, you know, you really learn busy when you have five, 6,000 covers on a Friday night. Um, so, again, great training. From there, though, as the fast casual movement started growing, especially in New York City, I became highly interested in that. You know, as first as a chef, you're like, oh, no late nights and weekends. But in reality, you're taking that back of the house employee that usually had a wall between them. And they're on the front of the house now, you know, serving the guests with one to one and a half minutes to either please them or deal with their problems or maybe make them unhappy. But I love that challenge. And it was because I've always been on both sides of that line myself. I love conversing with the guest, uh, solving any questions they had, and really got deeply involved with that with Chopped. And at that time, they were only three units. But from right there and in, in, involving in this conversation, you, know, you really saw the power of, we didn't call it plant-based back then, but People love salads and they always will, right? Especially in the summer. But Chop took that as, as everyone saw that, especially in New York City, you know, four or five branches grow overnight of just, you know, just salads, sweet greens, etc. Uh, you know, the world loves their salads and they made them more fun, adding you know, worldly ingredients, different proteins, um, lots of veggies that people never even thought to change a certain way. You know, this beet, charred corn, just, and it was things you knew served in a different way in a different combination. And it was brilliant. Um, from there, I got involved with, you know, the New York city bar business. Uh, it, was, it was a nice one-year contract, German bar and restaurant, again, everything from scratch. And it really, all my jobs were intentional to learn every facet of the restaurant industry to, to really get to somewhere else. Cause you could, you could be a chef forever, but as you, as everyone knows, there's, there's a burnout factor involved, uh, that, you know, running a bar in New York city is, is a book that's waiting to happen. I'm sure. Uh, but Again, you get some life lessons of serving food and drink in, in the busiest city in our country. And I got to learn a new cuisine, which was from scratch German cooking, which, as we've all seen, has is, is really grown with the beer halls uh, uh, over the year in the beer gardens. Um, from there, uh, I was fortunate enough to, you know, some people from my past had started a business and I got into food consulting. Uh, and I always, you know, consultant's a dirty word in our business, and, and rightfully so, I think, at times. But it's... Uh, but if you are an expert in certain things and you can share that knowledge and help people either start a business or grow a business or fix a business, you know, it, it's a good feeling. There's nothing better in any business that you can help someone get to where they want to be. And I was really drawn to it because I did, you don't realize it, but I had unique experience in a very busy city. You know, as New Yorkers, we run the smallest kitchens with the highest output at the highest pay rate. And that is, is now, as we all know, has come to be every city's challenge. So, we just had the inherent knowledge, and now we can consult about it because we've been doing it reflexively for a dozen years. Um, I did take a uh, two-year stint to work with uh, as a VP of culinary for Dean and DeLuca, which was a dream job for me, um, developing their fast casual restaurant idea. Uh, sadly, the company, you know, the whole company in the U.S. took a turn, which was it was sad for me. One of the first things I did when I moved to New York was with Dean and DeLuca. Um, and as you all know, it's a, it's a chef's playground, some of the best coffee in the world. But it's, it's time ran out. Uh, so I was fortunate to go back into consulting. And I've been doing that now uh, for several years. Again, 
we own and operate concepts, uh, you know, the sous vide kitchen uh, food hall in New York City, which, you know, we utilize sous vide meats for safety, texture, deliciousness, and ability to just be nimble. Um, you know, and here we are. I hope I went that through that pretty quickly for you. <laughs> no, that was that was that was great. And uh, yeah, the Demon Deluca story is is a sad one for sure. I mean, and the fact that you you got to, got to spend time there and do some really impactful things with them, uh, I would say towards the end, <laughs> uh, must have been a good uh, box to tick in your uh, resume, at least in terms of the experience that you've gathered which I'm sure will come to use uh, in, in some of your future work that you're doing. So it's it's really interesting to see that your experience has all been in uh, New York City. As you as I, as you know, as we were talking about before we started recording, I, I live here, uh, very familiar with uh, the complexities of operating any business, especially in food and beverage in New York City. Uh, it's a logistically complicated city. It is, uh, it's, it's very hard to do business here. So I guess if you if you can succeed or learn some key lessons here, those can be applied uh, literally anywhere uh, because everything else seems easy in comparison to what you encounter over here. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, let's uh, talk a little bit about, you know, your experience in the food service space. Uh, you've probably over the last uh, 20 plus years seen a whole bunch of trends come and go. And I think, you know, um, some of them stick, uh, some of them become um part of our food culture, uh, whether in this city or across the country and sometimes across the world. How, how have you viewed the, the plant-based trend emerging? When was the first time you even noticed it? And, and what are your general thoughts about um, how this has kind of evolved in the last five to seven years or so since it's sort of re-emerged um, as a serious contender in the food space? Yeah, I was fortunate. I worked with Whole Foods for about four years, integrating um one of our concepts in the Bon Mi Vietnamese fast casual in the four other locations. And during that time, you know, beyond it, just a lot of people don't realize beyond started with chicken and the whole foods got in there. They got into whole foods a little early and got their name across and then got, you know, the attention of Bill Gates, et cetera. Um, and that success led them to developing the beyond meat and burger and expanding more. And then slowly after, I want to say 2016, when I really started seeing, you know, impossible and beyond getting out there where, again, being in New York, um, seeing uh, uh, David Chang, you know, at, at one of his restaurants do the impossible burger. And it really, that's when it blew up. And, uh, you know, it was in the news everywhere, New York Magazine, Food and Wine, everybody's like, what is this? It's, it wasn't just a product you could buy at the store. It was in a restaurant with one of the most famous chefs in the country. So that really, I think, started putting the focus on what plant-based could be, could be delicious. Um because you know, the movement started, Beyond started for the right reasons. You know, it was, you know, we want to reduce people's need on uh, you know, eating animals because of the impact on the environment it took, which a lot of people I don't think we're aware of. That, you know, the cost of raising an animal, you know, what, where, do they, where do they, when they go to the bathroom, what it does to the environment, things we kind of just took for granted that it's always there. And, and the microscope went on that. But when somebody with that kind of cachet puts it on their menu and opens a restaurant that just focused on it, I think it was, um, Oh, I forget the name, but it was you know, that was fascinating to see. And then, of course, you mean the Momofuku place that that first put the Impossible Burger? Was it? Yeah, like it was Nishi. Nishi. Yeah, Nishi. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I yeah. did go there. I don't know why I don't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he he. Re I think not even probably intentionally. Just that's when the city was like, "Wow, what is this?" And of course, everyone went there to try it. There'd be lines forming. They'd run out each day. So then people wanted it more. And then, of course, as a couple years followed. I think when Impossible 
started, you know, in the in the Whopper and Burger King. I mean, granted, with the marketing dollars they use, but that that took it to a whole new level of everyone in the world going because then you hit all genres: TV, radio, and then affordability. You know that you know because Impossible when they they were just doing the ground meat block right in the stores. You're looking at I could get 80, 20 ground beef for five ninety nine or this for nine ninety nine. I'm, I'm going to stick with my my real beef. Um, and I think that's when the change though started. It was more accessible. And let's be honest, the the challenge was I dare you to see the difference. And then you got people hitting their fifties. Hey, you know what? I love red meat. I eat it five times a week. But the doc said I should try something else. You know, here's your alternative. And it was it was brilliant, honestly. Whether we, we can we can see all the negative things we want about fast food or a particular change, but it was a movement in the right directions for their own reasons. But then people started trying it. And when and just like the commercial said, like I wouldn't have known you told me, and I ran out and had one. I think that's when it really just ramped up to like, this is something I might actually eat. Because before, I mean, we've turned vegetarian, vegan into these dirty words of, you know, I'm, I'm going to stay over here. And I think the things they did right was like, hey, you like me, give this a try, you'll like it. And that's, you know, Impossible did the, the, the heme thing, making it look like it bleeds. And the Beyond did beets, making it look red and adding the fat so it oozes out. And it, was, it was brilliant. They manipulated plants into looking like me and creating this genre. Cause that's the thing that I think gets confusing. When you say plant-based, we could go on and on with really everything's plant-based, but when we say it, it all makes it goes to, I took plants and I made it into meat, looking, tasting, feeling, smelling. And that, and that's kind of what most people, I think, as soon as you say those words plant-based, that's what it equates to. Uh, but yeah, so now, you know, here we are, it's, uh, it's everywhere. It's in many different forms. And I think people are getting more, adventurous for their own reasons. And did it impact the work that you were doing at the time? Did you get, you know, curious that you you didn't want to get left behind with any restaurant concepts you were working on at the time that were coming to you and saying, uh, hey, should I consider adding one of these things into my menu? Is the is it is this is this real uh trend? Is this gonna last? Uh was that something that came up at that moment? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting with the, if you look at the statistics of uh, people that are vegetarian, vegan, it really still lies in that three to 5%, but they're the loudest voices. And if you're on a college campus, which we were, we had several restaurants on major college campuses, that um, group is probably more in the 15 to 20% that eats vegetarian, vegan. So that, that became, not only do you want to get left behind, but you want to serve your guest. And so we were quicker to move on either offering plant-based or highlighting what we had that was already plant-based that may not be thought of it that way. You know, we have a, an Indian fast casual, um, and, you know, serving high quality falafel, samosas, uh, tiki patties, they're all plant-based. We don't, no one says that, but you know, you're using chickpeas and to make falafel and have potato based things and uh, many rice dishes. That's all plant-based. So we kind of geared the menu and that's a quick change, right? These are things we're already serving. We just started changing the wording on the menu, uh, you know, plant-based since this three quarters of the menu is plant-based, whether you realize it or not. And that, that kind of raised some attention like, oh, great, I'm doing the right thing. I'm eating things I love. They're not me. But then I, immediately, though, you get kind of the questions like, no, I'm when I'm looking for plant-based, I'm looking for this. I want a fake beef burger. And then, you know, where's that? And so it became a necessity to start, you know, I, I think just integrating one menu in it. Make sure you have a plant-based burger. Maybe there's two options in this. So that way, when someone, a meeting, a friend came in, 
you weren't losing business to not having that option for someone. That, that's all of our fears in running a restaurant, right? We all say we can't be everything to everyone, but you want to be a lot to many. And so, yeah, you, you definitely, as quick as we could, let's get at least one item on the menu. You know, it's interesting. And in, in hearing you talk about this, it, it made me, I think, probably for the first time, really wonder if the plant-based eating trend uh, emerged even before the really good plant-based burgers were uh, on the market. Uh, or which came first? Was it the innovation in the plant-based burgers that gave rise to the entire category? Because suddenly the word plant-based and vegan became less... Um, something to stay away from and became more aspirational. And and I love that you kind of delineated the two things. Like most of the people who are curious, or at least at that in the early days when Impossible and Beyond was just coming out with these new products uh, and, and having chefs do amazing things with it, it led to this demand for a new type of plant-based food that was like meat, uh, not something that would, you know, someone was choosing because they don't eat meat. Going back to that early on these those early days, were you seeing people asking for plant based even before the alternative proteins or the you know so called fake meats came about, or did you really see that trend emerge only because of the fake meats? No, you hit the nail on the head. I, it was what before the term plant based came to be, especially in you know in the restaurant space where you're trying to let's be honest, we're trying to make sales. It, you got. You gained a sub-market if you were the, had the better mousetrap. And by that, I mean, let's use Houston's as an example. If you've ever been there, they made the best veggie burger on the planet. Now, now if that was invented this week, we'd probably call it the plant-based burger. But what made it better, if you had veggie burgers, it was always dry brown rice with some things chopped up. You, you prayed you could keep it held together and then get it on the bun. And then, okay, it's on the bun. It's, you're good. <laughs> Enjoy. Um, and then... What would happen was in the vegetarian community, you know, they felt neglected. You might have one thing on there or it was always mushrooms, right? And, in, you know, it's, I got, well, this fall and I got, I got caramelized squash. You just, each season you had the same one or two things and they felt neglected. And so when Houston started making that veggie burger, we kept tweaking it, adding this, and we added beets. No one ever talks about this, but we added beets. We didn't say, oh, it looks like beef. We did it because eh, it looks red. It was almost kind of like a joke. Um and then we had this soy glaze on the top, so it would crisp. It was a sweet soy. It would crisp on the grill, so you got a little bit of chew. But they knew what they were trying to mimic. There wasn't on the menu, like, just like a burger, it looks red. But we knew where people's, you know, their, your psychology goes to. Like, look at that. Oh, it's a little crispy. It's not just mush. It's held together. And, you know, we, we got creative with black bean juice instead of eggs in there and, and before aquafaba was a word. But when you offered something that was vegetarian – and it was delicious, you were winning. So then that just, I think that rolled over into many other things. Like what can we make to put on the vegetarian section, which would now be the plant-based section, to draw in the customers that, A, we, it wasn't, back then it was just about having the options. It didn't really matter if it was good or not. You're lucky we even have it on the menu. I hate to say that, but that's how it was. Like, look, we got three vegetarian things. You should come here. We have something for you. And that isn't just a salad. I think that's, and the other, but on the other side, People were doing vegetarian plant-based forever, you know, Mediterranean, Middle Eastern cooking. I mean, that's always been three-quarters plant-based. Just no one ever used those words mm -hmm. and never, no one really said vegetarian. You just you knew you love falafel, samosas, but no one stopped to say, oh, it's actually vegetarian. It's actually halal. So, uh, yeah, years before they were they were vying for that 
better option, but it was really just, it wasn't centered at the meat eater. We weren't ever trying to get you to stop eating meat. We were trying to get you to try it because it was delicious and you're going to like it. That was definitely like, look, taste it. And you're like, you know what? That is good, but I'm still going to have a burger. But you're right. I'll tell my vegetarian friends. And I think that's, you're really vying for that. And then instead of the word plant-based, we would say, we actually have a really good vegetarian option. So we all tried to build that better mousetrap with vegetarian offerings and not just the same old four things that everyone always offered. Yeah, I love, that's such a good observation because as someone who, from my perspective, I'm always trying to see like, how does this, um, how do these uh, innovations or shifting consumer trends actually lead to some long-term change, right? What is, where, where is all this leading to? Because it's, we're in a constant process of evolution and food culture is constantly changing and evolving. Uh, what was not eaten suddenly becomes commonplace in a few years uh, and you can see that in, in different aspects of, you know, you know popularity of, of different chain restaurants in the U.S., while burgers and, and the fast food chains have stayed pretty much the same. What has changed is that people are, you know, Japanese food got so popular, Korean food has had its wave. And these things initially started off and seemed um, that there was no way this would become a national trend. It was going to stay regional or perhaps in a, to the coast at least. Um, with plant-based eating, it's it's so clear that the invention of some products that maybe not exactly, but came very close to replicating what the real experience of eating a burger was, triggered I think a, a wave of of um, of changes in this industry. I think um, because it allowed, as you said so clearly, it allowed a meat eater to take this seriously and to consider it, even even just to try it the first time. Now the question is, will it stick? And are there enough diversity of products in the space to get someone who identifies very clearly as a meat eater uh, and someone who doesn't really, you know, consider the word vegetarian or vegan to be part of their vocabulary would want to choose and pay money to eat something that is made entirely of plants? Um, and, and what will drive that behavior to become more uh, sort of adopted at a mass level nationwide and then maybe across the world? It, it is so interesting to see that from your perspective, you sit in the middle trying to assess uh, how you design menus to keep people to come back to your restaurant. And then you were early on to notice that the alternative protein or plant-based meat space was something to be taken seriously because it was appealing to a different set of consumers, which meant more people falling into your mousetrap, essentially. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it, What was funny about you know, the age I'm at and watch this progression is, you know, when tofu became big, it was like, I get it. You know, it absorbs flavor like a sponge, but it was missing the, you know, 50% of eating is texture and it never had it. And it was so, it was so difficult. And we I could tell you weeks of stories of, marinating, searing, cooling, because you you wanted to have that chew. And then, you know, Satan came out and that, hey, look, this is chewy. And there was, you know, you go to every food show, it was this product that was chewy and then it had every flavoring known to man, right? It tastes like tacos, chorizo. And then I think every iteration of plant-based has gone through that. Like, look, it can taste just like this thing we know you already love. And that's the, that's the bait, right? Like, oh, you know what? I do like that. And I think they're all vying for the point, get get in there get in your psyche now that you like this because in five years we have to eat it because the planet can't take it anymore you already know the one you like and it's almost an experiment and we're going to get your attention now hopefully you'll feed it to your kids and i think that these companies are all like our parents they're tricking you into eating vegetables because you need to 
not only for your health, but now for the planet. And that's, I think that's the beauty of it. Like if you eat some of these plant-based chicken nuggets now, you're like, I cannot even believe that it's not chicken. It chews like chicken. It has the scent of chicken and it has the coating. Um, it's funny for a lot of us, a certain age, you, you reflect back to that chicken nugget, which probably wasn't even real meat. But as long as it chews like that, you're like, you know what? This is pretty good. <laughs> so it's uh, I find that part interesting, but it works because you can put it in a dipping sauce. You can throw it on a sub and call it a chicken parm. And that's what I tell a lot of people. I'm like, get this and put it in your freezer. You can, it's funny. A lot of the plant-based food is actually fried now. I find that hysterical for some reason. But you know, they'll <laughs> tell you, these plant-based companies are like, we find the best way to cook our product is fry it. I'm like, you realize how contradicting this sounds, right? But it's meatless and it's better for the planet. It may not be better for you, but this is how it gets nice and chewy, crispy, et cetera. And that's what people want. And then, you know, everything's a vehicle for a sauce, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it's also maybe a process of, uh, of, you know, innovation and growth. I mean, I think maybe the Holy grail really is, can you replicate the taste te- texture mouthfeel of meat from plants, but also uh, deliver on all the health promises that the word plant-based uh, tends to uh, come with, right? The health halo that surrounds plant-based today is a bit of a, um, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated one, right? Because it depends who you ask, right? Some will say because it's plant-based, inherently it is better because it lacks certain things that you find in meat and other animal products. But then other people will say, well, if you compare it to, to broccoli or black beans or lentils or other legumes, you you basically are ending up with something worse off by eating a plant-based meat. So it's all relative and depends who's asking the question and who really even cares about the response, right? So I think it's, it's um, it, I think those things will, it's going to take time for us to truly figure it out. I think lately, a lot of the, the criticism around plant-based meat is centered around the fact that it is uh, overtly processed. Um, again, the response to that is what depends on what you're comparing it to and what it is replacing from someone's uh, meal. Uh, because if someone's, of course, replacing that healthy salad they ate every day now with uh, uh, a plant-based burger with, with cheese and, and other stuff on top of it, I think you know the answer. That's pretty simple. Uh, you don't <laughs> right, have to be a genius. Right. Or something fried. You're not, you're not a genius. You don't have to be a genius to figure out what's better there. You know, I'd, I'd be interested to learn what you think, because you've had this amazing uh, vantage point to look at not just the supply side innovations from companies like Beyond and Impossible and several other new ones that have emerged in the last few years. But you also obviously in your role have to understand what consumers want to buy, right? Because if you can invent the, the, the best tasting techno forward, you know, future burger, uh, but if no one wants to eat it, uh, it kind of doesn't matter. So you have to find that middle ground, that meeting point between supply side innovations and uh, sort of demand side uh, interest in these products. Initially, given the fact that most of the products were just burgers, did you find that limiting or did you think that that was, a, that was probably the best place to start because of the, st- the statistics about how many burgers are consumed in this country? It made the most sense to launch in that category. Although, as you pointed out, Beyond actually launched in chicken first, which everyone seems to have forgotten. Yeah, I think the burger was smart because of the processing necessary. You could you know, you can, it's a patty, right? And it's the only food that we eat that's ground and not coated. You know, if you have a chicken patty, as we probably had terrible versions in high school, who knows what was in that or hot dog, you can grind it up and you can't see it, but the burger's a visual. You know, you're going to cut it, you're going to see into it. So you had that option of taking a melted amount of ingredients and it didn't, 
a burger doesn't need to look like anything except that shape. And, you know, look at a real burger. It's kind of brown and ugly, right? Even the best cooked one in the world, it's brown and ugly. And hopefully the mid, the insides, the temp you ordered it at, but it's an ugly thing, <laughs> even if you put diamond marks. And so I think it was the best place to start because it was easy to manipulate. Um, it froze well and, you know, defrosting it did not, it, you could control the portion size, gear it towards the bun, burger buns. You know, you got to look at your vehicle. They invented something that they already had a chassis for that engine. The buns are out there. Let's make it fit. Most buns are, you know, four inches. And we can, you look at your end user, who's going to buy this? If the home cook's going to buy it, it's going to fit on that standard piece of bread or bun. Or if the restaurant, that's even easier. You know what bun they're probably using for chains. I think a lot of those thoughts went into that. If you, if you look at a sausage patty, you know, they're all pretty much the same size in the restaurant industry. So if you're going to make a plant-based one, you're going to make it the same size as your Jimmy Dean. And then that, and if you're really a smart corporation, you're thinking of where your biggest sales are, who would buy this in volume. And I think that's why they went into that segment first, because it was easy to handle, easy to count. You really can't screw it up. You could cook it on a grill, a flat top, a turbo chef, roast in the oven. So again, it just, it had so many options of cooking, selling, storing, and people knew how to work with it, familiar with that shape and size. It was, it was a smart play. What do you think they're not thinking about that they that you're seeing in terms of consumer demand and shifting tastes and flavor profiles, perhaps, that maybe these cookie cutter products just do not currently capture? Or maybe they rely too much on the end consumer doing all that work or the restaurants really using their platform to, to, to make something amazing out of those products? I actually think now that they're really catching on because in this, you know, this past year alone, I would say the past 18 months, they've really expanded their offerings, like all of them with the, let's call it Italian sauce or chorizo. And it's not just crumbles. I think initially everything was crumbles and they assumed people were all eating chili tacos, burritos, you know, and that, that, that was limiting. But I think these past, you know, 16 months, you've seen that. Uh, the, the the tender, the nugget, um, the unbreaded strip, which is definitely gaining popular because that's your number one selling food in any environment. Grilled chicken Caesar, your your chicken burrito, your chicken sandwich. And they're finally, they're addressing that. That's what they were missing for years. Like, And, and you're seeing that. KFC rolls out a plant-based um, project. It sold out in a couple hours. That's very telling. You know, and it tasted good. It chewed right. And, and the beauty of <laughs> the funny of that part of that is that the thing they were mimicking wasn't probably that real to begin with, you know, uh, and here we are. So it was a, an easy offshoot. So all the things that they, those are the things that they think they were getting wrong, just sticking to that beef patty or really trying to push that, that there still are that, that ground beef look. I mean, how many, yeah, you can make a nice meat sauce and then turn it into lasagna, but is that practical for a large variety of things? And I think right about now they're starting to get into that. I think also what a lot of them are doing wrong and starting fewer turning the corner What's the ingredient deck? You know, if, if we're if you're truly a plant based and concerned about the planet, and your ingredient list is this long with twelve things I can't pronounce, you, you're you're kind of a contradiction, right? You're just like, oh, trust me, it's better. Don't worry about those things you've never heard of, and, and then that's where I think a lot of people get it wrong. But I've seen the turnaround with you know dairy chicken out of New York City or um, Nestle's Sweet Earth. That ingredient deck is like six ingredients. You can actually eat it from a cold seat. A lot of people don't realize this, even though it's plant-based. You have there is a kill step. You have to heat those plant-based items because they're not fully cooked. And so they've come around like, what's the practicality? What, what, where can a restaurant use this more? You know, and they they're they're really getting creative with that. You're seeing everything doesn't have to be breaded. Um, they're using less soy. You know, like, uh, the, the soy and, and ingredients. Now, if you're talking 
let's look where people eat high volumes, uh, hospitals, military, colleges, they, they don't, people don't want soy for whatever reasons, you know, you can, you can talk to your nutritionist about it, believe it or not, it's, it's, it's the way of the world. And I think it's always been the, you know, this, this cheap ingredient that you use anywhere. And, and I find what I find hilarious, and I'm going to really cause some controversy here is people that have been cutting food with soy based granules for decades, we won't say their names, but ex, you know, it's called it expanding ground beef, expanding tuna fish, uh, your hot dog stadium, chili, now, you know, before there was like, they were sneaking in soy to, you know, it's half meat, half soy because it was cheaper for them to make and it could sell at a higher cost. Now they're probably badging it on that bucket of fake chili, 50% plant-based. It was always 50% plant-based because it was cut with soy. Now cutting with soy is a positive a aspect rather than you're cheating us out of money, which I find hilarious, but you know, it, it is the way at the moment. <laughs> yeah that's that's uh it's a quick way to and, and then sell it for more money now right because uh your packaging makes it seem like you have a better product so um yeah the food the food space if you follow it closely will, will really um surprise and delight you with some of its contradictions um as as trends change right because it is such a ever-evolving and shifting space uh, I, I know you've done a lot of work with big uh food service providers and if you were a food service buyer today, um, looking to explore this category, trying to understand, you know, how do I make sense of which products, um, you know, of course you've got to taste the products, but which products are going to be best adapted into their menus? Like what tips would you give a food service buyer who's out there trying to make these decisions to meet their, you know, let's say a university, right? They've got to make, meet the tastes and the needs of their, of their user, end users, uh, but at the same time have costs and other factors to keep in mind. And maybe they have some sustainability commitments to, and they're trying to meet all these goals while ensuring that they deliver on their uh, revenue promises. So uh, what, what typical tips or insights can you give them that could be helpful? You know, you know your audience because the, the plant-based world is very 50-50. To back to what we said before, you're either one of two types of people. You're you, you don't you don't eat meat. You're not a meat eater, and you're looking for something you know more creative, a different delicacy to eat, and so you're not eating the same old thing that's accessible and it doesn't cost an arm and a leg. And I think the mistake that a lot of people aren't making is what you just said. How is it better for the planet? You're telling me by not eating meat, automatically, no matter what you put into this, it's better for the planet. Is that true? And why is that? You know, discuss your ingredients. You know, what is it? Where is it from? Even if you're if you're soy based, fine. Where's the soy from? If you're corn based, where's it from? I think more and more people want to know that. You know, make it. I always call it the kid test. When I, I test every major brand of plant based on the market, and I hand it to kids, I don't say a thing. If they eat it and smile, you you did it. You're winning because they're, they're the true you know the true teller if something tastes good, feels good. But on the flip side of that, I don't think there's anything wrong with what you know Impossible Beyond are doing because. That's a different segment. You know, it's no accident that Beyond and Impossible are next to the raw meat in the grocery store. That's intentional because that person's making the decision, all right, doc said I shouldn't eat red meat or I know I shouldn't eat it. Cholesterol's high. Uh, you know what? Let me give this a try. And, and that's if they know their market and that's what they're going for, then so be it. I don't think they're I don't think they're trying to pretend to be something they're not. They'll take a lot of slack, but they're intentionally trying to that meatball, we want it to chew and taste like a beef meatball. And if you're a vegan vegetarian, you may be looking for that, but it's like you said in the beginning, it's not necessarily better for you. And I don't think they're lying to anyone that it is. So I think to any 
food service operator, know your product, know your audience and market it correctly. Um, don't just make it for the sake of making a plant-based product. And I, uh, I love Dr. Prager's for that. You know, they've been around forever, right? Making plant-based items that weren't called that. And they're like, we love it. They go, we want our product to be right next to a juicy steak on the plate. We're not trying to take over beef. They go, that's, that's who we are. We know we are. We're going to keep doing what we do. And that's words from them. And I, you know, I applauded them. That's brilliant. And that, I think that's, they know who they are. They're not going to change who they are. They make quality product. They're clean ingredients to be a product. So yeah, that's what I say. Stay true to yourself, know your audience, and just don't lie about it. You know, be direct and, and stick to what who you are and, and the reasons you are who you are. Yeah, I would say one note on Dr. Prakers, they actually have something called the perfect burger now, which is a bit yeah. like uh, the Beyond Burger, but but I think healthier, is, um, at least if you read their marketing. Um, yeah. I can't speak to the ingredient deck, but I know it's a, it's a little bit more like the other Dr. Prakers burgers, which are generally just vegetables, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, they, and they did it well. It was, it's actually pretty good. They, they did. They said they jumped on the bandwagon a bit, and it was a smart move. But like you said, you read the ingredients. Like, you know, I know all these vegetables. They're vegetables morphed into this patty, so you you feel a bit better. You feel better about giving it to your your family. Um, so it, they kept to their their roots and their brand, which was great. But they they tried something new. It was too not too far outside the box. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, that's the you know, it, it leads to better competition. It leads to innovation. I mean, it's eventually. Uh, the very nature of certain products uh, will make it impossible to be truly uh, 100% clean label because you, you know, as I, I think I heard someone from Beyond say, a, a burger needs fat. So you're never going to have a plant-based burger that doesn't use some sort of oil in it because you need fat in it. Um, yeah. And if you have uh, oil in it, inherently it's less healthy than something else, right? So if it's just straight up vegetables, so you might be able to clean up all the other ingredients somehow, but you're, you're just there's some limitations to the just just what you're trying to create. Because the moment you take away all that, then it's not going to be like meat, which defeats the purpose of why you're creating plant-based meat in the first place. So, and I think it's interesting that we're even having these conversations. It tells us that the space has really evolved. I mean. Right when we started this discussion today, you were talking about um, David Chang and the uh, the Impossible Burger at his restaurant, and how it was such a novelty. Like no one was asking questions about the ingredients. It was just, how is this even possible? How can you make burger? Uh, how can you make plants taste like a burger? Like it was just uh, a, a something new and exciting. And of course, now that it's been around for a while, and there's been a few other competitors in the space asking questions, and consumers also becoming a little bit more aware of what's going into these products. Uh, it leads to to hopefully more innovation in this space, which um, which helps everyone. I think so. You know, I think it's um, given your work with uh, menus and on the culinary side. What have you seen really work uh, in the last few years? Uh, that if any examples you can share of where you've seen uh, new plant based options being incorporated in a in a restaurant concept or a menu that traditionally didn't do it, but now jumped on the so-called bandwagon of uh, plant-based meat uh, alternatives. What has worked and do you see multiple applications that maybe people are not exploring? That would be really interesting to explore. Yeah, I'd say a great example, you know, consulted with a a major uh, convenience store chain for years. And, you know, we can all, we all know the convenience store food line, right? They they are what they are for a reason, Um, but they started integrating you know, chicken tenders for, for kids and, and, and the name brand plant-based burger for that exact reason. If you're, if you're, you're looking for a quick lunch and you didn't want to have that burger 
you know, let's see how it plays in this crowd. And, and that was a very unique to me, and they're, they're still going strong. I think where they missed the boat, though, is that, you know, go a step further. You know, don't just serve. Here's some plant-based chicken tenders. You've got all these LTOs that probably utilize some form of chicken finger or chicken cutlet, right? We can go on and on. I remember telling this. Here's, some, here's a freebie for the world. Do the same LTO with the plant-based nugget or tender. If you're putting it on your tasty bun with mozzarella, tomato sauce, and some, you know, mozzarella sticks, that's a thing, right? Why not use the plant-based chicken? Serve at the same time, see where it goes. I bet you, and give out free ones, just like Burger King did. People are not going to know the difference, and then you can make them feel good. Sadly, good for you needs to be the third attribute. Hey, it's a good price. It's really delicious. Oh, by the way, it's good for the environment. No way. Now you have a you know the, the trifecta of feeling good about a purchase. I think if you lead with that, you know, there's been people that built vegetarian, I'm sorry, um, plant-based only menus. You can't be the only thing on your menu. I think that's where the mistake occurs. Integrate it in pockets. That way people have options. People can try it. I think the number one complaint that was everyone's like, why is it so much money? Shouldn't plants be less money? And it's hard for the manufacturers to explain that. That's why I think the C stores were able to do it. They got, they were able to buy in volume, throw the experiment out and everyone needs gas, right? So they, even you're getting that five to 10% that wants vegetarian, they need a quick fix. And they knew that was an option. It, it, it's, it was a smart play. And a lot of those things are frozen and then reheated. So you're not, the you know the end user the person selling it doesn't have to worry about shrinkage because uh it's you know it's it's like raw beef i pulled it i defrosted it i've got to use it in five to six days you don't have that issue with plant-based so they could experiment without the worry of it's not moving fast enough um so that i think i i think it's you've got to get creative with an lto get it exposed out there at a nice price and then once people fall in love with it like any other lto then you can get on the menu for a little bit higher because people have known to come and love it i think that's where you go with it like it isn't even more about that it's plant-based. It's like, this is unbelievable. And these are the ingredients. You don't even have to say it's plant-based. You know, come try our power tender sandwich. Oh, what's that? Eat it. And as long as the allergens are listed and then they're loving it. it oh yeah. By the way, it's plant-based. We didn't even tell you. Yeah, Cause th that's where I think it needs to go. Cause then the sales go up and you're like, the chew is there. You're like, what is this really? Like, it doesn't matter. I love it. And that's how, you know, that's how things go. People don't want to think about it. They want to know it's not completely horrible for them and it tastes delicious and it's worth it has the perceived value. You check those boxes, you can put a lot of things between bread. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's true with the variety of products available now. I mean, people should be choosing these uh, uh, menu items in spite of the fact that they're plant-based, not because of it. And I think there's always going to be that, especially the, the biggest consumer base is the one that's not actively looking for any plant-based options. And so how do you get them to buy one if they're not looking for one? And so the more you talk about how plant-based it is, it turns them off perhaps versus if yeah. you talk about the attributes of the menu item uh, versus the fact that it is plant-based and better for the planet. Those are secondary attributes. It's like it tastes amazing and it's got this awesome sauce on it and it's got this toasted bun on it. And that's probably enough for someone to make a decision when they're, when they're quickly trying to decide what to eat. And of course it works better in some settings versus the other, right? This isn't something for maybe a, uh, you know, sit down restaurant with, with the, you know, elevated menu or something, perhaps this won't work there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's sadly become a negative connotation, whether you want to see vegetarian, vegan or plant-based. If you put up, if you and I open a restaurant tomorrow and wrote vegetarian Mediterranean restaurant, and we had to open the same place next door, it just said Mediterranean restaurant and the menus are exactly the same. We both know the foot traffic 
I always, I always call it the across the street test. You'd be like, we're going to the Mediterranean. We know and love it. Not really ever thinking about it too long that it is three quarters plant based. It's out of its originality. That's where the origins, that's where it came from. And the less you talk about that, it's just delicious. And that's what I think I, I could say that about, you know, everything gluten free, what have you just make delicious food. And you can tell them after the fact and the people that's really important to you are going to ask anyway. Like, oh yeah, don't worry. It's vegan. Really? Yeah. We just don't put it on the billboard. Oh, it's vegetarian. Like you can let it be known that you have these things without being your sole front of the restaurant poster. And then that's like you said, once it's delicious, once you love it, listen, onion rings are vegetarian, yeah, but no one says that. All right, we have vegetarian onion rings. <laughs> you don't call it that. They're just know you like them. They're crispy and they're fried in vegetable oil. We're good. And, and it, it really, ha- nomenclature goes a long way in marketing. Yeah. And to your point, I think start working it into your menu. And, and I told an operator that do it because look at supply chain issues, right? Look at the volatility of raw protein. Even if you get it frozen, just like I said before, go to plant-based because it does taste just like it. And you don't have to worry about a getting it, B how long it's going to stay fresh. Cause it's frozen. It's always there when you need it. Why are you playing this games with burger patties and anything raw? Like I'm, I'm I think go to it as quickly as you can for those reasons. It's always there for you. It's not going to go bad. Oh, yeah, and it's better for you and better for the planet. The third and fourth attributes, yeah, I mean, handling raw meat is the most dangerous thing in any restaurant or food service operation. They eliminate as much as you can. Yeah, that's such an interesting element, right? Eliminating risk, which is inherent uh, in a food service operation at high volume because, uh, you know, the food safety concerns with uh, raw meat versus plants. Uh, is a completely you know night and day right so you have to be still be be careful but it's not the same level of risk right you just have to follow a few guidelines and keep it frozen and then don't keep it out too long for most products um, use it up as quickly as possible but it's it's interesting there's so many I've, I've never heard that argument be made but I totally understand that I've seen it in action uh, in a, in operators that use uh, you know regular traditional beef versus that and plant-based and they're just blown away by the fact that it's so easy uh, to store and, and keep the products that are all plant-based because they it, it, they're not meat they don't have those inherent risks in it and so it's interesting it's not the most it's not going to drive that decisions but it definitely eliminates some of the headache that is inherent in operating uh, a food service operation yeah yeah and plus the other side of that coin is you know with the great resignation especially in our industry which has seen the most impact from people not wanting to work there anymore you, you need to open up your employee options of people that really have no food service skills you just need someone that wants to work can read and has a job and if you can do that i can teach you and that's the other thing people have a fear of working at a restaurant they may looking for any job if you can eliminate that fear like don't worry you're not gonna make anybody sick I'm going to show you how to take it out of the package, put five on a tray, hit that button that I pre-programmed. And when it goes off, take this mint and pull it out and put it here. You're done. In one day, you've trained them, made them feel comfortable, and they're going to come back. And they're like, I can do this. You know, it stills the confidence, takes away fear. You imagine the other one. All right, as soon as you touch this chicken, wash this entire dairy down with bleach and wash your hands and eliminate this and mop that. Okay, now. And then you're like, whoa, it's intimidating. And you're like, wait, I could kill somebody. I could make someone sick. I don't need that on me. And you're, that's a hard job to recruit for. It always has been, but now more than ever. So you got to, I'm not going to say you got to take what you can get, but you got to take what you get and, and keep it and make them feel comfortable. And that's, that. so 
you can give people confidence in the job you're doing without fear, that's a huge attribute. And I think for a lot of people, you need to go with it. Yeah. And that's just the, the, the reality where we are right now um, in this space, right? And hiring in this space. And you've got, if that's just one, again, it just eliminates headaches. You've got enough problems as such operating a kitchen. You don't need more. Um, and it, it improves on, it, it builds those efficiencies, which saves time. And of course, saves money in the end, which is important if you're trying to be in the food business. It, it, in looking at the sort of evolution of, products and categories in the plant-based space. Uh, we've talked about burgers at length today, and we talked a little bit about chicken, because that, of course, has sort of emerged in the last couple of years as, uh, as, a, as a new product category where some really interesting things have been done by a few companies. What is your general assessment of the landscape of plant-based meats and, and you know, where, where it stands today and also where it potentially may go? For example, I'm I'll throw one out there, plant-based seafood. Do you see, uh, are you seeing any interest in that category? Is there, uh, if and if not, is it because of lack of innovation or is it just because of uh, consumer, have changed, consumer eating habits have not caught up? I think there's been some brilliance in the fish category, whether it's, um, recently I've seen, I have one here right now, a company called Finless. They've made, looks like raw ahi tuna, you know, out of a melon. And it's brilliant because there it is on the plate. It has a chew to it. It's purely from a vegetable. And it just has that color and texture really reminiscent of raw tuna. What I'm fascinated about that about that is, you know, we're going to look at the kids of the world. Let's look at the eight-year-olds. Because if you give that to them now, very soon you're not going to be able to eat seafood because plastic in the water is overfished. It's going to be the real good stuff or anything you can get. It's going to be exorbitantly expensive. I think if you're going to enjoy what once was or what is now for those next generations, you need to introduce them to that. Like, hey, and it's just it's going to be more about because it's delicious and has a great texture rather than it's just like this thing you used to eat. That's what you and I are looking for. And people, whatever, 65 and down. But if you're 10 and you've never had raw eye tuna, which maybe you have or haven't, but I give you this thing and, wow, it's tasty. It has a great chew. I like that lemon sauce you put on it. I think that's where you got to start looking at that world. And because these other options are going to be gone and we need to let the, you know, the sea population rejuvenate, you know, reestablish itself, come back because of the overfishing. I think watching the people get creative with vegetables in that way opens up. We know people like food in this form. And if you create it in another option that is made from plants, then you can keep enjoying the things that, you know, former generations, previous generations have got to enjoy. I think that's where you got to get smart. Like, who am I going to start serving that's going to be in high school, college soon and me have never had these things? Let it be the first option of this that they ate, first uh, variety of this they ate. And then they just, that's what they know. And so it just becomes an automatic thing. It's going to take, you know, 10, 15 years, but keep going with that ingenuity, keep utilizing, you know, and that's the other thing, keep utilizing the plants that are grown. You know, we only use squash in one way. Rather than just being roasted or pureed, now you can turn it into a, a finless fish. Great. Uh, you can turn it into a, a mashed patty that has you know, the spices of meat. Great. And that we can tell the story of how you're using something that wasn't center of the plate. And you, you know, that's where I think plant-based needs to get, to get to. It's not only that it's a plant, but we've avoided, because it's in its patty form, we've taken something that would have probably been waste and we've turned it into something delicious and nutritious. I think that's where everyone needs to get to. 
and tell the story, yeah, it's got to be delicious. But not only is it better for the planet because it's not meat, but we've also reduced waste by forming it out of this product. And then it, it'll it'll catch on because it's delicious and it's the right thing to do. But that's I think that's where no matter what version of fake meat we're talking about, that that's where we need to be because the youth is interested in that. And we're all interested. Like, great. I'm, I'm doing a good thing by buying this product, consuming it. It's good for me. It's good for the planet. I think you got to and get better at that storytelling of, of why. Yeah, you've said so many good things there. I mean, I, I, I'm going to focus on one or two of them. But, but one was the fact that, yeah, if you can introduce certain foods uh, early in life, that, that just what they have eaten. And I think a key to getting to that point, of course, is price, right? Of course, if you're able to provide a product that at a competitive price point, that becomes a legitimate replacement for something that was previously available that now is scarce or too expensive because it's scarce and overfished. Uh, you have an opportunity to influence a whole new generation on how they view uh, certain foods. And and then when they are introduced to the so-called real thing, they have no interest in it because it's unfamiliar. And so you've kind of flipped the whole uh, dynamic on its head. You've, you've made the alternative, the first choice <laughs> and uh, and then the the real thing or whatever is is something that's almost forgotten and 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 is not part of your diet anymore so i think that's one huge opportunity for some of these products it's easier said than done obviously but on a theoretical level i totally uh, am with you on on our ability to do that and be creative with it i also think it's like looking uh kind of thinking about how we can um you know, kind of meet consumers where they are. You've got to have that balance. You cannot, uh, you've, you, you've got to, at one time, on one end, you've got to really innovate and and try to displace certain products on the market that are eventually going to go out. But on the other end, you also at the same time have to have products that meet people that are maybe in a different demographic that are just nostalgic for the foods that they always ate or love to eat. But, you know, maybe the doctor is telling them they shouldn't be eating right now. Uh, they finally reach that point in life where they they care about things besides themselves, and they care about the planet, and they want to do something more um, more impactful that has a positive impact. So reasons may vary, and and I think it comes down to that combination of um, having the right marketing tactics, the positioning of your product, the storytelling, but then having the ingredient deck to back that up, the uh, supply chain story to back that up, and and yeah, if you can. If you had to almost imagine what the perfect plant-based product of the future is, it's one that is made of uh, upcycled ingredients that takes waste away from the food system, turns that into something that replicates meat using nothing but whole food plants, but then still happens to taste uh, and have the texture exactly of the animal-based product it's trying to replace. Of course, that's, that's the dream. That's the holy grail. Um, and I think, you know, it might be closer than we imagine. I think uh, that's where innovation needs to be in the next few years, too. Uh, now that we've seen that, yeah, we can make a burger bleed, even if it's made of plants. What's next? That's really interesting. Yeah. No, it's so true. I think the up, I think the upcycling movement is the ultimate in all movements, whatever we're talking about. Even if you're just you, – you got to get creative on what it was once waste. I think we've wasted so much time on center of the plate and – if you can upcycle, yeah, that, that's the key because it's still a vegetable. It, it's or you know we, it, it, I think plant based can take advantage of that because it's it's enabled itself to be formed products. So since it's formed, you know you you 
Why not integrate it with things? You know, let's call it you're hiding the vegetables. You can use an upcycled tomato, onion stubs, carrot tops. Uh, yeah. And I think that's where that storytelling comes in. Like, hey, you know, and love this. You know, as, as just like we did with the recycling movement, this pitcher is made from 50% plastic bottles. Same, you know, bragging rights, 50% upcycled vegetables. So not only was it plant-based, it's even super plant-based, right? And and put that like a badge of honor on every box you sell. You need to, That's for everyone, whether you're vegetarian, vegan, or, or you know, a meat eater, and you want to do the right thing. And, and then and market that. It's just like meatless Mondays, right? What we'll call it upcycled Tuesdays. Well, no, Tuesdays is tacos. Sorry, upcycled Wednesdays. <laughs> you, you know, and, and and get that going, and, and use your marketing team to strategize. You know, and even if that's the only reason they bought it, and but then you know, hopefully you had the culinary team behind it. They're like, they did it for the right reasons, and oh my, oh my goodness, this is delicious. You know, capture them with both, but whatever bait brings them in, uh, you know, do your due diligence to make it. That the fact that you got them to buy it, then it, it's actually really good. <laughs> so that, and that's the culinary side of it. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you to bring your crystal ball out and kind of make some predictions. Where do you think this whole space is going in the, I would say, near to long term, um, especially as it relates to food service? Obviously, uh, any any predictions, any and even not predictions, any hopes that you have, given that you've now been involved in the space and you seem to obviously understand it really well. You, you, to me, I, one hopes upcycled, I think, is everything. I'm working with a company called uh, Matriarch, and I'm fascinated, you know, the passion that they started this with. You know, just the other month, they bought a million pounds of tomatoes, I think, from Virginia that would have went to waste for whatever reason. And they turned it into a pasta sauce and a tomato basil soup and all low sodium. So now it's a, a nice base that you and I could turn into a soup, a sauce, add salt if we want, add beef if we want to, but... They took something that would have been garbage, packaged it, and made it delicious with their chef team. And I think that's where we need to go. And then it's up to you whether you're a restaurant or a food manufacturer that can say, hey, we're buying our tomato base for this sauce from Matriarch or whatever. You know, get get that co-branding so everyone can be proud and happy. And I think that's step one. Step two, I think I'm pretty impressed with, you know, the dairy segment. Um you know, we could talk all we want about almonds, you know, what you make it out of is it is the base product, you know, bad for the planet. I think people are getting creative with, with cashews and other nuts to make, you know, your cheeses and your spreads and, and doing a good job with that. But I think, can you tell the story of why it's not bad for the planet more efficiently? And I, and I love that as adults, we shouldn't be eating dairy. And I think I like watching that segment grow, you know, your, your, your coconut yogurts, your, um, your oat milks, things that are been readily accessible or grown in mass quantities and turn into something that people that can eat dairy or shouldn't eat dairy can now enjoy. I think, you know, as long as they're being responsible to the earth, and I'm loving that, talking about upcycling, the companies now where they're taking the spent almonds, oats, etc., from the milks and turning them into a flour that you can bake at home with, like that's where we need to get at and tell that story. All of our oats from our oat milk go to, you know, Joe and Jen's uh, flour factory, you know, continue the story. And even if you're selling it to them, you're not giving it free, but that way everyone understands that because I'm buying from you, I'm also helping out that company. Again, another win. You're telling the story of how, yeah, they're all for profit. They should be, but you can also feel good about it because everything we did to give you this great product, it's going another step. And it just makes you, once it makes you feel good, you're, you're more likely to buy it. And I think that 
it's almost like we're almost working as a team in an industry of of food like right you know it's going we got to talk about it's going from not only farm to table but farm to soil where does that that spent product end up we'd all love to say that we're composting but is that practical in you know joe and debbie's diner on the corner they'd love it to be but but if you if you put that ability in the foods they're buying and they're doing it for you there's the win you know do the hard part for your customers in that aspect too i think that's maybe i'm asking a lot by saying that but I think that's where the future is, that, that full circle story. Yeah. I mean, that's where that food has to go. I mean, if you have, want to have a shot at being able to produce enough food to sustain uh, uh, human population on this planet that is nourished with good nutrients and uh, good food that doesn't destroy us and destroy the natural resources that we rely on, we kind of have to do that. We have to make it more plan forward. We have to uh, reuse more food uh, and let less of it go to waste. Uh, and those just need to be principles that we need to try to incorporate within our overall food system and how much and how which which category will, will rise or fall. It, it really depends on how how creative people can get with the uh, products and ingredients and the way they source it and the way they uh, process it or uh, don't process it to create something amazing that people want to eat, right? Because it comes down to that. It has to be uh, something people want to spend money on and uh, feed their kids with right so if it has to pass those tests and if it doesn't then it really doesn't have a shot talking more um sort of short term um we are probably going to meet each other at plant-based world uh expo in september and i'm looking forward to that um what are you looking forward to uh with the with the entire trade show um any specific products or categories you're excited about or conversations you're looking forward to at um I'm, I'm intrigued to learn about why um, you will be at the event and what you're hoping to get out of it. Yeah, I'll definitely be there. I'm speaking at the event, actually, and <laughs> uh, kind of on similar topics as this. But I'm ex- I'm always excited about any food show, especially this one. Like Just the things we said, the creativity of where people – like last year is what I was very excited about is seeing um, uh, plant-based vegan ice creams. You know, people t- – and then just – and each booth I went to, and I'll never forget the one I went to, I said, this is unbelievable. This texture, you nailed it. And she was like, well, I worked for one of the major corporations for nine years, and I took that knowledge and I applied to this. because." And then she put in some amazing packaging. That's what catches your eye. So that thought process, because it's it's trifold, right? It's does it taste good? Is it good? Is it actually good for the planet? And you know, does it stand out in a crowded category? I think you got to hit all three or you could have a dead-end product that had only two of them and it never sold because you didn't take consideration of the packaging. I think if you're going to be an innovator, I mean, I'm, I'm specifically talking to retail items in this in the plant-based world, and I think that's, you know, that's there. What I also like to see is how are these people that are making these products, a lot of times the food service aspect is neglected. You know, if you, you're eating your whatever favorite food like that's from retail, a hot sauce, a pint of ice cream, et cetera, are they thinking about how to get it in the food service? And normally they're not. It's almost an afterthought or a hope they get into once they've gained retail popularity. But if you start with that in mind, A, you save on packaging. B, if you have the right marketing team, I can start buying at my restaurant and say, hey, we probably sell Dinah's plant-based ice cream that you've come to know and love off the retail shelves. And because they thought about it, made it in three-gallon portions, that's the win. I think you got to start. I want to see how creative they are in getting these products into food service because right now, it really is limited to like, you know, five brands and, and there's maybe the survivors and the ones that buy up these smaller companies, but 
I like to see both retail and food service thought process. Um, I am still excited about it's been, uh, you know, recently at the NRA show, you know, a lot of people realize this 40% of the food display this year was plant-based, which was a phenomenal number. And you really saw it. I think the creativity behind, you know, they really stepped outside the box. One of my favorite products, I don't remember the company right now, but was plant-based spam. And, you know, you know, as a kid, I grew up in that sadly, you know, we all have our economic times, but I was floored how close they got to it. And that was the thing they were saying, you know, we found it odd too, but people love it. And they nailed it. I would be a consumer of that. I would buy that. I would put on a restaurant menu. You know, the cheese, I think the plant-based cheese, they've really gotten into how it melts, how it looks. It's not just one form. You know, the one big player now is making like eight, nine different versions of cheese, your feta, your mozzarella, your cream cheese. Like that impresses me. So it's not just one form of it. Now we're really getting into the varieties and other way people can use it. And they're showing it more. It's not just melted on pizza. Hey, we made this dip. We, we integrate it into this risotto, show the public how it has more than just one application. And you need to do that. When you have a booth and you spend all that money, get that out there. Then and even me, who I think I know everything, right? You you're, want to be surprised at how they took something they made and showed me how to use it differently. And then I'm going to share it with you, with the restaurants I run, the people I consult with. That, that work, that thought process on your display is everything. Don't just give me a sample. Show me three ways, not every way, but you know, educate the consumer educate the chef and you'll really get people thinking. I think that's, and that's why I love going to these shows. You know, you took the time to make this product, you know, now take the time to show me how to use it. How are you using it? And I uh, you know, keep us guessing, keep us thinking, keep us wondering. And I, I love that. That's, that's why I look forward to it. These shows learning as much as I can. That's, that's awesome. I mean, I think it's, that shows a true passion and excitement for food and, and this space, because there is so many interesting things happening that, you know, even if you don't care about the plant-based space or the future of the planet, which I don't know why most people wouldn't care about it. If you're passionate about food, this, 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 you cannot ignore this space because people are really doing something different and, and not all of it is great, but there's a lot of really good ideas coming about. I think the rest of the industry kind of needs to catch up. I think right now we have an overabundance of amazing new products with, uh, that are getting squeezed in distribution and, not finding enough shelf space. I think those are the bigger challenges. And those are just a question of getting the different stakeholders in the industry truly understand whether it's buyers and food service or retail to, to see the potential here and to kind of uh, take a chance. I mean, if we, if uh, you know, going back to where we started, if, if whole foods hadn't uh, taken that early chance with beyond meat um, I know first they launched in food service in the deli counter uh, with the chicken uh, before they even did the burger and then put the burger next to uh, in the in the meat aisle. That 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 was one thing that happened. And then you know, on the other hand, with Impossible Burger and David Chang, it was these initial steps, these leaps of of uh, um, of attempts to to try something different that has brought us to where we are today. So who knows what that next leap might be that is going to lead to this amazing domino effect in the next ten years that that allows plant-based to continue to grow and, and evolve at the pace it's been growing. So, you know, a lot to be excited about. Um, I appreciate all your insights um, today and, and the knowledge that you shared. Uh, I look forward to meeting you in person soon. And um, yeah, I think this is an exciting space and I'm glad to have you involved in it. Oh, thanks for the invite. This has been wonderful. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely see you at the show. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nils Zacharias. 
If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Thank you for listening.